right. Good, good time of fellowship just then. I enjoy that. It's good to have that back. I know it's not the same as it uh, used to be. We're not hugging each other and shaking each other's hands, but it's still good to see all the friendly faces here at church today, back, getting back to some idea of normalcy. Uh, one thing hasn't changed during all this, and that is we've been preaching the same, uh, the same book every Sunday morning through the entire uh, pandemic. So we just keep on going to the next verse. So that if you have your Bible, we're going to do the same thing today. Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 33. And I have in front of us here today, and you come on a good Sunday. We have a great story to tell you this morning in Matthew chapter 14. I think there's an incredible miracle here. Uh, I think, this is my opinion, that up to this point in Matthew 14, we've covered 14 chapters, about halfway through the Gospel of Matthew, that this is the uh, most impressive miracle that we've seen. I titled the sermon today, The Most Impossible Miracle That We've Seen, uh, and you'll see why in just a minute. That's my opinion. You may think that some of the other miracles are more impressive than this, but I think this is the most impressive, the most impossible miracle that Jesus has performed yet, and I think this is more than just a great story. I think as we look at the most impossible miracle he ever performed or performed here, we're going to see that this is not just a great story. We have a great Savior that can do the impossible. That looking at your life and you say, hey, this is impossible and this is impossible. That you can look at your God and you can say, but my God can do the impossible. I've been putting that in my, the minds of my kids all week long. Even Emma looked at me this morning as she turned over her coloring sheet for the sermon today. She's, she was, she's sitting over here coloring it right now. And she looked at Jesus walking on the water and she said, God can do anything. I said, you better believe he can. We have a God who does the impossible. In whatever situation you're in in your life, our God can do the impossible. And I love that. So let's stand together and let's read the most impossible. And it would be a, a, probably a better title to say the most impressive miracle that Jesus performs. And again, the takeaway is that Jesus can do the impossible. Uh, and you should walk away impressed by who he is and what he can do today. But I think this is a, a story that every single one of you have heard before. So let's read it together. Matthew chapter 14, starting in verse 22. It says, And straightway Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship and to go before him to the other side, while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. Matthew 14, 23, it's about 8 or 9 o'clock in the evening, and he's up in the mountain praying. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch, which would be between 3 and 6 a.m., in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit, and they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And Peter answered and said, Lord, if it be, if, if, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And Jesus said, Come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid and was beginning to sink. And he cried, saying, and I love these three words, my favorite part of the passage, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? And when they were coming to the ship, the wind ceased. And then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, Of a truth, thou art the Son of God. What a great passage. Let's go ahead and pray together and then we'll study the most impressive, the most impossible miracle. Father, we thank you for uh, the opportunity to study your word. This is a great story for us to look at today. And and we could look at all the, the, the parts of it, and there are many. There's all kinds of things we can chase and we can talk about. Uh, but God, I, I want us to see today, not the winds, not the rain, not Peter stepping out of the boat. I don't want us to see all those details on the outside. I want us to see and to be impressed with the impossible, miracle-working Savior that we have in Jesus. May we all leave here today with the same mindset and the same heart the disciples did. Wow, what a Savior we have. That even Jesus, our Savior, can walk on the water. This is amazing. This is wonderful. So God, please, by your Spirit, work it into our hearts here this morning. And we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. 
When I say the word impossible, this is what I mean. I think you guys know the word impossible is a common word. And what it means is that something can't be done. That's as simple as it gets. I looked it up in the dictionary this week just so I could have an idea of what it meant. And it said impossible means it's not possible. And what, what, the, what a definition that, that, that is. Impossible means it can't be done. It means there's no way. It's out of the question. There's nothing in the world that could, could make this to be done. And, and I looked up some things that are, are impossible that we cannot do. That's, it's out of the question. We can't do these things. And here's a few of them. We can't fly. And I mean that individually. I can't take off and fly, flap my arms and fly up into the sky. None of us can. You would say, Josh, if you think you can fly, that is impossible we can't run a two-minute mile you can run as fast as you can and it's never been done it's never been close you can't run it's impossible to run a two-minute mile it's impossible they say i've not tried it to sneeze with your eyes open it's impossible to don't try it please to to lick your elbow uh there may be some people online right now you can try it you're not around anybody else you're in your living room go ahead and give it a try to lick your elbow maybe some of our kids christians over there trying it right now they say it's impossible, I don't know if it's true or not, for me to preach a sermon under an hour. I don't know if that's true or not. We'll see if we can do the impossible today. But these are things that are impossible. But what I want to give you today is that the Egyptian symbol, the, the, uh, the symbol that they would use in, in the walls in, the, in their pyramids for impossible. This, uh, get this, this is great. The Egyptian symbol, the, 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 what they would put on their walls is two feet on top of water. Why would the Egyptians put that as their symbol for it is impossible, it can't be done, it's out of the question? Because they believed that walking on the water was the most impossible task in the world. Out of all the things that it's impossible to do, lick your elbows, sneeze with your eyes open, uh, preach a sermon under an hour, drink only one cup of coffee. Uh, out, of, out of all those things that are impossible, the Egyptians uh, figured out that their symbol for impossible would be two feet walking on top of the water. They believed that there's no way that that could be done. They would require the, the suspension of, of all the laws of nature and that it would be a miracle if anybody were to be able to do that. That it would take someone very amazing. It would take someone on the level of God to be able to walk on top of water. Anybody's ever tried it, go ahead and try it today. Go to the swimming pool, take a step out. You're not going to do it. It is impossible unless you are God himself. And that's what we have here today. That's exactly what Jesus does. He does the impossible. Don't overlook it. This is not a small task. This is a massive, impressive, impossible miracle for someone not just to walk on a calm, cool pool, but on a stormy sea with waves and wind and Jesus' feet are walking on top of the water. That is impossible. Only God could do that. And that's what we see here. Even the disciples in Matthew 14 were amazed. That's why I said it's impossible. The disciples had seen a lot of miracles. I mean, they had seen up to this point in Matthew 14, they'd seen him cast out the demons. That's impossible. They'd seen him heal all manner of diseases. He'd healed the blind. He'd raised the dead. And just last week he fed 5,000 plus people with just five loaves of bread and two fishes. That is impossible. They've seen some impressive miracles. We need to understand all that he's done. But the disciples, by those miracles, the casting out the demons, the healing the diseases, the raising the dead, the feeding of the 5,000, they're not convinced yet. They saw the feeding, and in Mark 6, it says they were unfazed by the feeding. Wow. It was marvelous, but it wasn't convincing. They might could explain that away. You know, well, I mean, did you, Jesus had, you know, who knows what he could have done while we wasn't looking. And they could have explained everything, every one of those away. And maybe that person really wasn't dead, and, and he, just, he just revived them. Maybe you know, all these different things that they could explain it away. But here in this miracle... When they see this, this is a huge event for them because their eyes are finally opened and they are convinced in this passage that only God can walk on water. And that's what they say at the end of Matthew 14 here in verse 33. They look at him and they haven't done this before. In 14 chapters, it is never said that the disciples worshipped Jesus. They've been amazed at Jesus. Their mouths have dropped at Jesus. They've said, get this, this is pretty good. They have been wowed by Jesus, but they have yet to bow to Jesus. And when they see this miracle here, they respond for the first time 
in worship. And they say, he must be the son of God. Only the son of God could do this. It's not wow. It's them bowing before the son of God. This miracle here convinced them. This miracle opened their eyes so they could see and understand for the first time who he really was. All those men on the boat said, oh my, only God could do that. And this miracle today, it convinced them and it it ought to convince the world. If this man can walk on water, he must be God. There's a lot of religious leaders out there who've done a lot of great things, but only one has walked on water. And this one is the Son of God. So let's look at this story. I want to walk through it. This is almost how the sermon of walk to remember. So I want you to I want to walk through Jesus walking on the water. And I'm going to lay it out to you in three headings, three points, and I want to show you the most impossible miracle. Number one, I want to show you, and you guys can write these things down. I like people writing these things down and taking notes just as we work our way through a passage. But I want to show you, number one, the panic in the storm. The panic in the storm. And it starts in verse 22. I want to give you a little bit, a little bit of a backstory in verse 22 because they had just had probably one of the greatest days of ministry that Jesus had had in his two years in, in the Gospels. They, they'd... We had just seen the the biggest miracle. I could have called that last week the biggest miracle because it involved the most amount of people. Twenty five to thirty thousand people were fed. So it's it's not the best miracle, but it's the biggest miracle. And Jesus has become in verse twenty two extremely popular. This at this point, and you could mark this in your Bibles, but in Matthew 14, verse 21 and 22, this is the the pinnacle of his ministry. This is is the height of it. This is the peak of it. Everything goes downhill from this until he hits the cross. At this moment, he's at the top of his his popularity. He's at the top of enthusiasm. He has 30,000 people that are clamoring around him, wanting to, to take him by force and make him their king. People love Jesus. They love the disciples. This is a a great opportunity. The crowd is full. And you know when people are full, they're happy. Their bellies are full. They're smiling. The disciples are loved. They're patted on the back. This This is in verse 21 and 22. The best day ever. Most people would take up an offering at this point and start a building program. I mean, he he could have it made now. But, But watch what he does. Again, verse 21, he fed upwards of 30,000 people. Verse 22, what does he do? And straightway, immediately, Jesus sends everyone away. That's like us having a crowd of people come to church on Sunday. And I'm sitting there thinking, wow, we're popular. Everybody loves us. And I look and say, all right, everybody leave. We don't need the crowds. We don't want the crowds. That's what he does. He sends them away. I think this is amazing. And, and he sends the crowds away. It says there he sends the multitudes away. He says, all right, you, everybody leave. Everybody go. No, everybody go back to where you're staying. He sends them away. And he not only sends the multitudes away, he sends the disciples away. And I love this word. And straightway Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship. The word constrains there means they didn't want to. They're probably trying to talk him out of it. Hey, Jesus, we're popular now. We can set up a kingdom. Everybody loves us. Let's stay. He constrains them. He, he commands them. He, he forces them. He, you know, they always say he voluntold them. They didn't volunteer for this. He, he, they were told, get in that boat and go. Do it immediately. This is not a suggestion. He, he tells them, you get in that boat and leave. And they do what he says. I like that, and this is not a big part of the sermon, but when you're told what to do by God, you do it, whether you feel like doing it or not. You obey. There's a lot of people that look at it and say, you know what, I don't like that. I don't want to do that. I don't, I don't feel that today. It don't matter how you feel. When you're told something, to do something by God, you do it. So they did it. They, they, they got in the boat. They didn't want to do it, but they reluctantly got in the boat, and they went. And where did Jesus go? Went up into a mountain to pray. And when he had sent the multitudes away, verse 23, he went up into the mountain apart by himself to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there all by himself. So he's there in the mountain by himself about 8 or 9 o'clock in the evening at the end of a great, great day. But the great day is about to turn into a dark night. That's how things go. Storms come into our lives when we least expect them. 
We could have a great season. We could have a, a perfect time. We could think everything is going so great and, and just everything is so smooth, smooth sailing, and, and, and we're popular and we're cool and we have all, all of our needs met and everything is just going great. And, and it's a mountaintop moment, but in, in, a, in a second it can turn from a, a great day into a dark night. And, and that's what's happening here. Jesus is sending them into another storm. And he's doing it on purpose. And he's showing them that life isn't always going to be clear sailing. Life isn't always going to be easy. Even for Christians. There are some preachers out there that like to say that once you become a Christian, everything is just easy peasy, piece of pie, flowers and gardens, and, and God is going to bless you and meet, and you're going to have all the riches and, and all that you want in life. There's a Greek word for preachers that preach like that. You want to know what it is? Baloney. <laughs> <laughs> that's not a Greek word, but it's a, it's a fun word. <laughs> Somebody sitting out there saying, is that a Greek word? Been eating Greek sandwiches all along. <laughs> no. Jesus is sending them straight into a storm. From a good day to a dark night, and Jesus did it. He made them go. He forced them to go. Get this, and we'll move on. If, if they obey him they go into a storm. If they disobey him, they miss the storm. Disobedience sends them away from the storms of life, and obedience sends them into the storms of life. Why is that? Because Jesus is the one planting the storms and using the storms in order to grow his people. That's what he's doing here. Every storm that we go through in life, every trouble that we face is either engineered by God himself or allowed by God himself. And he's using it to grow us to the point of, of maturity. That's what he's doing here to them. The storms of life are never out of the hand of Almighty God. So here they are. Jesus sends them into a storm. And this is the first storm that they've been without him. He's up in a mountain somewhere, and where are they? Look what it says. We'll get into this storm. Verse 24, but the ship was now in the middle of the sea. They are now, the, the, the sea is about six, seven miles long. So being in the middle, just let's, let's put our math together, they're about three or four miles in the middle of the sea. They're well away from the shore. They can't see the shore from where they're at. They're at the deepest point of the water. This is not shallow water. They're a long distance from land. It's very late. It's very dark. And it's eerie. You, you can imagine that they're in the middle of the sea. They can't see the, the way they're going. They can't see where they came from. It's dark. It's silent. It's eerie. It's late. It's deep. And get this. They can't see him. They're away from eyeshot. I'm sure as they floated away or sailed away that they were waving at Jesus on the shore. And as they got a further away, they couldn't see him. And they couldn't see him. And they got three miles out and they can't see Jesus anymore. And he's up on a mountain somewhere. And there they are in the midst of a, of a sea. And they can't see Jesus anymore. He's too far away. And that's when the storm hits. It says, But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. The wind was fierce. The wind was in their face. It's like the sea was angry at them. It's like Steph when she's stirring something to, to, to make some kind of brownies or cookies. She sits and stirs that bowl up. It's like the sea was just stirring it up. And sometimes when she can't stir anymore, she gets those, those beaters and, and sticks it in there. Just gets it, you know, gets it, gets it all going, all, all shaken up, all, all stirred up. And it's like out there in the sea in the midst of a bowl. And they're sitting there just, and it's not Steph stirring it up. It's not Mother Nature. It's Father God that is stirring up this storm with his disciples in the middle of it. And the winds are blowing against them. And the waves are beating up against their boat. And they're rowing for the, everything that they have. They're tolling, trying to keep it from going under. It started at 9 o'clock. And by 6 o'clock, in the morning they're still rowing it's not stopping what a storm this goes on for hours they're in the fourth watch and they're still going it's not letting up and in verse 24 at the fourth hour the first fourth watch of the night they're out of options <laughs> they're in the storm and they can't get themselves out and get this 
They faced storms before, but the last one they faced, they had Jesus in the bottom of the boat. Now, just think how bad it is. They're in the middle of this storm. They've been rowing for hours. And they, they haven't made it a, another mile. They haven't made it nowhere. They don't have Jesus. And Jesus has no way to get to them. Mark 6 says that they took the last boat that there was. So they're sitting out there in the middle of the boat and they're saying, we can't see Jesus and Jesus has no way of getting to us. There's nothing we can do. There's no hope. I'm sure doubting Thomas of the disciples are sitting there saying, he's saying, all right, guys, we're all going to die now. We're going down. This is over. Quit rowing. You know, you, you got those doubters around you that's always pessimistic. This is over. Everybody quit. We're done. Jesus is back there. He can't get to us. There's no other boats. We're going to go down. We're all going to die here. They're at the end of the rope. They're at the end of themselves. They can't swim. They can't hold their breath. They can't row. There's nothing they can do. They cannot save themselves. They can't. They need a Savior. They need someone that is mighty to save. They need someone that can do the impossible. They need someone that is powerful. They need someone that is greater than the storm. They need Jesus. Now we have to look at our own lives right now and say, when will we reach the point where we say we can't do it on our own anymore? Does it not seem, and I use that on purpose, that in America right now, that we're getting stirred up. Does it not feel that way? I don't know about you guys, but I do. I mean, I, I, I watch way too much of this stuff. And I listen, and, and, and I see what's going on. And, and it's, it's, it's like, the, and, and we can sit there and say, oh, it's the politicians, they're, they're stirring it up. Oh, it's the athletes, they're stirring it up. Oh, it's the liberals, they're stirring it up. Oh, it's the conservatives, they're stirring it up. But we're in the midst of a storm, and it might be, it possibly is, our God that's stirring things up. And why is he stirring it up? Why has he got his finger stirring everything up? Because we've already said every storm is energized by God or allowed by God. But no storm is out of the hand of God. So he is stirring it up. He's, he's stirring America up. He's stirring the world up. Why? So we can get to the point where we say, hopeless, helpless, end of my rope. We need Jesus. That's where we have to get. We need a Savior. His name isn't Joe Biden. His name isn't Donald Trump. His name is Jesus Christ. And He is America's only hope. I'll say this. It's not just about our country. Our churches are getting stirred up. Our churches need to turn to Jesus. You want to hear something else? Let's take it more personal. Our families are getting stirred up. In storms, who do we turn to? The only one that can walk on water. We turn to Jesus. I'll say this, unless you want to go even further. You say, Josh, it's impossible for you to preach under an hour. I know, I know. This is where we have to get in the storm of our own sin. To where we turn to Jesus and say, I don't have the strength to save myself I can't swim, I can't hold my breath, I don't have a boat. We have to get to the point like Doubting Thomas where we'd say, it's hopeless, boys. There's no way I can save myself. I need a Savior. That's where we have to get. And there's still people trying to do it on their own. I'll be good. I'll go to church. And they're, and they're rowing and they're rowing and they're rowing. And they have to get to the end of the rope or the end of the rowing and say, I need a Savior. I'll never do it on my own. That's where they are. They need Jesus. And I, I heard a song this week that in the midst of them needing Jesus, when the storm was at it, the night was at its darkest, the wind was at its strongest, the waves were at its highest, the disciples were at their weakest. There comes Jesus walking on the water. What a picture they get. They go from straight up panic to almighty power. I like that. That's point number two. What a transition. They go from the panic in the storm to the power over the storm. Mark 6 says, Jesus sees them. You say, how in the world can Jesus, on a mountain somewhere, praying? Three miles out into the sea, 
His disciples are rowing. Mark 6, you can look it up. It says he sees them toiling in the water. How can he see them? Because there's nothing he doesn't see. We may not see him, but he always sees us. You may feel at a great distance from him. Where are you? Oh, that's good for America right now. Where are you? Oh, but his eye is on us. His eye is always on his disciples. He's, there, there's no one outside of his view. And in, again, in the weakest, in the darkest, in the worst of the situation, Jesus comes to them. You see that there? In the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them. He didn't say, come to me. He didn't say, meet me halfway, did he? There are people out there that say, you have to meet Jesus halfway. You, you, you go, you do your part, he'll do his part. Let's get back to that Greek word, baloney. He doesn't make us come to him. He doesn't meet us halfway. He goes walking to them. And how does he get there? Not on a boat. He's not swimming. He's on top of the water. What's about to go over their heads is underneath his feet. It's the absolute power of the Lord of creation and the master of the sea. I watched videos on it this week. I wanted to picture it in my mind. There's movies. There's cartoons of Jesus walking on the water. I saw one that just floored me. But there they are in the boat, and they've they done a great job with this movie. There's just wind and rain and, and the waves beating up against the boat, and they can't even see. It's dark, and, it's, and it says the wind was against their face. It was against them. And in that movie, you see Peter moving people around. What is that we see? And in this movie, you see Jesus almost strutting. On that water. He's not doing. You see him chest out. And he is walking on top of the water. He is walking. I wrote it down. With dominion. He's walking like one who's in control. He has no doubt in his step. There's no fear in his face. He's walking like one who has authority. He's walking like one who is sovereign over the winds and the rain. He's walking like, like Job 9.8 says. Like only God can tread on the water. He's walking like the one who created the water. Like the one who controls the water. Like one who can march on top of the water. And he comes walking to them. And in verse 26, watch this. This is how impossible this is. Watch what happens. He walks on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they're trying to figure out what it is. And here's their options. And Jews don't believe in ghosts. So here's their options. It's either Jesus, a man, walking on top of the water, or it's a ghost. Which one is more impossible? We don't believe in ghosts. But the most impossible thing a man could ever do is walk on water. So, it must be, the Greek says, a phantom. It must be a ghost. We don't believe in ghosts, but if you see something weird, you're going to start saying, maybe I do. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I, don't believe in, I don't believe in ghosts. But you can sit in the house in the middle of the night and you hear something creaking. and you go, is there a ghost here? And you have to tell yourself, I don't believe in that. But then you go, go to bed and get under the blanket. <laughs> and you don't ever admit that in front of a crowd of people ever again. <laughs> so you have on one hand, it's Jesus walking on the water. That's impossible. But it, so it must be a ghost. And when they say, oh no, this is where they go with it. That's what they believe it is. Because it's impossible for a man to walk on water. So it has to be a ghost. It's a phantom. It's a spirit. And that scares them to death. We're going to die. That's the grim reaper coming after us. It's over. It's done. Look what it says. And they begin to panic even worse. It says they're troubled. 
They're, they're panicked. They're frightened. It just got worse. They're screaming. It's one of those things where they're, they're all trying to jump ship. And then Jesus, straightway, immediately, spoke to them. And he didn't look at them and say, you dummies. That's not how Jesus talks to his people. They didn't see him. They heard his voice. And it was the voice of their shepherd. And Jesus gives them a three-point sermon. It's not alliterated, but it's a three-point sermon. He says, cheer up, calm down, it's me. You can read that in the King James there. Be of good cheer. It is I. Be not afraid. But this is what it says. Cheer up, guys. Calm down. Everything's okay. Why is it okay? How can we cheer up, calm down? How, who, who can do that? But again, the, the storm hasn't stopped yet. And Jesus says, cheer up, calm down. Cheer up, calm down. I, I like that. That's a good two-point sermon. Cheer up, calm down. But how can somebody cheer up and calm down? Cheer up and calm down. How could you look at America right now and say, cheer up, calm down. Have you not seen what's going on, Josh? Looking at the church today, and there's a problem in every pew. And the message to you today is cheer up, calm down. I couldn't tell you how many people I tell to calm down. Cheer up, calm down. Cheer up, calm down. Cheer up, calm down. How can we do that? Because it is I. Cheer up and calm down because Jesus is here and he's in complete control. Cheer up, calm down, I'm here. That's what we love to hear. His presence is all that we need in the midst of life's worst storms. All they needed to hear was, I'm here. All they, my kids have bad dreams. Emma has bad dreams. My boys would never admit it, but they have bad dreams. Gracie does this doesn't tell me she has bad dreams anymore. But when they cry at night, and we come walking into their rooms, all they need is their daddy's presence. And everything is okay. All they needed was Jesus. He's the one that was on the mountain too far away. He's the one that didn't have a boat to get to me. He's the one that I, I didn't see and I, I couldn't hear. But now he's here and that's all that we need. His presence with them. Did not Jesus say to us, I'll never leave you nor forsake you, but I'll go with you all the way. And lo, my presence is with you always, even to the end of the age. That's all he needed to hear. That's all we need to hear. We may not see him. We may think he's at a distance. But he's always within arm's length of us. And he says, cheer up, calm down, it's me. And watch what, I love that. And what does Peter do? You guys know what Peter's like. Look what he says. And Peter answered and said, Lord, and in the Greek it would be, if it be thou, it would be, since it's you. Bid me to come unto thee on the water. Since it's you, let me come down there to you. Why does he say that? I've heard a lot of people just, just say all kinds of bad things about Peter for this, but I, I like it. He hears what he wants to do. It's not that he wants to get out on the water and brag and strut and be like Jesus and, and get and run circles around to, out in the water. That's not what he, he wants. What he wants in verse 29 is to get to Jesus. That's all that he wants. I don't want to be in this boat. It's safer in the storm with Jesus than in the boat without him. So he says, i got to get out there to you. Will you let me? Bid me come to you, Jesus. Peter loves Jesus. Matthew 17, he goes to the Mount of Transfiguration, and there's Jesus in all of his glory. And he looks at the other two disciples, and he says, let's build a house right here and stay here forever. I want to be right by Jesus. Every picture that you have of Peter, there's Jesus and there's Peter. There's Jesus and there's Peter. Everywhere. He wants to be right beside Jesus because he knows it's safer with Jesus than anywhere else. So Jesus says, come on. <laughs> That's the, the redneck way of saying it. Come on. Verse 29, he said, come on. Come on. You know, I stand in, in, in a pool with my little girl waiting with Emma on the, on the edge. And she's sitting there shaking. I'll hold my arms out and say, come on. 
smile on her face. And she just, I mean, like, like nothing could hurt her. Just walk right off the edge, right into daddy's arms. Come on, let's go. And that's what he says to Peter, come on. And Peter jumped in. And you know what Peter did? He walked on water. There's two people that have ever walked on water. Jesus and Peter. Jesus has the power not only to walk on water, but to allow Peter to walk on water. Some people say, well, Peter didn't make it very far. <laughs> he only made it like 10 steps. That's 10 more steps than anybody else has ever made it. People say, Peter failed. But Peter tried. You know where I would have been? Curled up in a boat underneath a blanket somewhere. But Peter jumped out of the boat and said, I'm going to Jesus. The man who tries to do something and fails is better than the man who tries nothing and succeeds. But Peter jumps out. <laughs> and he starts walking towards Jesus. Look what he says. And he said, come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, and I like that invitation. I don't have time to get into it. I'm trying to get under an hour here so I can do the impossible. But Jesus said, come on. It's the same invitation that he gave in Matthew chapter 11. Come unto me, all you that labor and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. It's the same invitation that goes out to every single person in this room today. If you are an unbeliever, he says, come on. Come to me. Come to me and I'll save you. Come to me and I'll forgive you. Come to me and I'll take you to heaven. Come to me and quit trying to be good and try to be religious and try to do it yourself. Stop the rowing and come to me. I love that. Come. I'm going to say that here in just a minute when I get done with the sermon. I'm going to look at everybody in here and I'm going to say, if you're an unbeliever, come. The invitation, and it's not an invitation to come to me. I, I say that upon the authority that God has given me in Matthew chapter 28 when he told us to go on to, into all the world and preach the gospel and invite them to, to come to him. And it's a, a come to him. And it's the same thing to anybody in here who's in the midst of a storm. You know what you need to hear? Come on. Come to me. You say, I can't do it. Get out of the boat and go to Jesus. And Peter goes and Peter fails. I don't know if he saw the waves and they knocked him off balance. I don't know if you know, he's trying to, to, to walk the tightrope. I don't know what happens. But he goes from, I've got to get to Jesus. And he takes a few steps to, oh no. We're all quick to fail. Every single one of us. And he gets his eyes off of Jesus and he begins to sink like a rock. The Bible says that in verse 30, when he saw the wind boisterous, he became afraid, and he began to sink like a stone. I think that's funny because Jesus called him a rock. He began to sink. He began to plunge deep into the water. And he cried. The only words he could get out. Lord, save me. I heard a preacher say this week, if he'd have tried to set a, set a prayer that we try to get people to pray, he'd, all, he'd already been underneath the water by the time he got the words out. But the only words he needed to say was, Lord, save me. Lord, save me. Three very powerful words. Those three words can take you from hell to heaven. Those three words can... Take you from in your sin to forgiven from your sin. Those three words can take you from being away from Christ to in the arms of Christ. Those three words can take you from, from death to life. Those three words are three of the most powerful words in all language. Lord, save me. I believe if a kid in his heart understands his need for salvation at five years old, he can reach out and say, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus will save you. I believe that the oldest person in here, that if you are in your sin and you truly see your need and your desperation, I will go under if He doesn't save me. If you'll say, Lord, save me, He will save you. What powerful words and what powerful action. And immediately Jesus saved him. Instant salvation from a watery grave. You say, well, Jesus said it was just little faith. I love that with his powerful hand, he grabbed Peter, lifted him out of the water. And you know he didn't just set him here. What power was in that hand? Peter was a grown man. I've got a 12-year-old boy, and I couldn't reach up and do that for him. Could you? 
I've got, I mean, even Emma at that 25 pounds, it's hard for me to do that. But what power in that hand to reach down and immediately save him. What power in the hand of Jesus to reach down into our sin, in the pit of our sin, and to save us. What a miracle it is when Jesus saves us. What a powerful hand. Lord, save me and his powerful hand, the same hand who made the bread and the fish is the hand that reached down and saved Peter. You say, well, that was little faith by Peter. I'll tell tell you this, it was little faith. But when Jesus reached down and picked him up and put him on the side on the water, his faith grew a whole lot. We all have little faith. And in every storm of life, our faith grows a little bit more. Let's move on. And immediately, Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him. Like a fish. (laughs) You get that? He caught him. What'd you catch today, Jesus? A man. And he sends them out to go fishing for men, does he not? And he caught him and he said unto him, O thou little faith, what did you doubt for? And when they were coming to the ship, this ship was going down like the Titanic. And Jesus steps into the ship. They say, all the pictures that you, and these are old, old paintings that they had from, from many years ago, that the ship was literally about to go down. Like one end of it was going like the Titanic was getting ready to go in the water. And Jesus just stepped right in. Brought Peter in the boat with him. And when they were coming to the ship, immediately the winds stopped. No words, no show. The elements yielded to his presence. And it goes from being battered, winds and rain, waves beating up against it. The guys are holding on for dear life. And they get in. And it's complete calm. That's miracle number three. Miracle number one is Jesus walking on the water. Miracle number two is Peter walking on the water. Miracle number three, I guess, let's say saving Peter was miracle number three. Saving or calming the storm is miracle number four. You want to know what miracle number five was? You turn to John and it says as soon as they got in the ship, everything calmed down and they were immediately at the land. What? It's like he raptured them to the land. And in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, they go from being in a storm with rains and wind and waves all around them, and Jesus gets in and they turn around and say, Is this where we were all along? How did we get here? Jesus. They needed a Savior. They have a Savior. Just four quick applications for you before we get to the last point. In our storms... He sees us. He sees us. You may think you're alone. You may think that no one cares. But his eyes are always on us. Number two, he comes to us. We're always at an arm's length from him. Number three, he saves us out of the storms. And number four, he always gets us to the other side. I think Peter and the disciples now have a lesson that not only does Jesus come to us, not only does Jesus save us, but I am pretty sure that Jesus is going to get me to the end of the race. So what a lesson for them. Not teaching these disciples that that they can walk on water. There's people out there that try to say all these miracles are teaching us that we can do the same. I've yet to see one walk on water. This isn't a lesson teaching us how to walk on water. This is a lesson teaching us that our God does walk on water. And we can trust him in the midst of life's worst storms. Last point, number three. That was a long one. I've shown you the panic in the storm. I've showed you the power over the storm. I want to show you now the praise after the storm. It says in verse 33, you can imagine their faces. You can imagine what they were doing now it says that then they that were in the ship came 
and worshiped him. You see that word worship? It's a big word there. What does it mean that they worshiped him? Does it mean that they, they, they got some instruments? And, they, and, and you know, the, one of them started playing the piano. Another started playing the drums. And another started getting the guitar out. And, and that they were on the boat singing songs, waving their hands. Is that, what they, is, that what they, is that how you picture it? That, is, is that, is, that they're getting their worship on there in the boat? Is, is that how you get the worship here? Because that's not what the word worship here means, but that's the word that, that we get in our culture today, that it's worship. That, 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 that's, how, that's what worship is. You have to have some music. You have to have some, some waving of the hands. And I'm not saying anything's wrong with that, but is that what they're doing here? Is that the picture you get of them on the boat? Because that's not what they're doing when it says they worshipped him. You know what the word worship here means? And we need to grab this because it's not just that they sang a song. That they started singing some, you know, some hymn or some praise song. That's not what they're doing. The word here means that they laid prostrate. That they were in reverence. That they kissed his feet. That they bowed down before him. That's the picture that you get. That Jesus is standing up and the disciples are bowing down. That's the picture of worship. This man is God and we must bow down. He is high and exalted and we are so low. I can't get any lower than what I'm getting. And they're clinging to his feet and they're reverence, reverencing him and, and they're exalting him. Oh, thank you for getting us through this. They're groveling at his feet. That's worship. That's the picture you get there. They're doing what no respectable Jew would ever do. Worshiping a man. In the Old Testament, you worshiped only God. Read the Ten Commandments. They knew the Ten Commandments. They were written everywhere. You have one God. You're to worship only that God. Him and Him alone. You don't take His name in vain. You honor Him on His day. You have no idols. You bow down to no man. Oh, that, that's something you need to hear today. We bow down to no man. So they worship Jesus and He doesn't stop them. He doesn't say, oh, no, no, guys, no. Don't do that. That's embarrassing. You strong fishermen. <laughs> Strong hands, strong muscles. Get up. Jesus doesn't say that. You say, why are they worshiping him? Their worship is motivated by what they know to be true now. Our worship is never motivated by our feelings. Our worship is always in spirit and in truth. It's what we know that drives us to bow down. It's what we know to be true. And that's what they say here. They say, of a truth. We are convinced. We are sure. It is beyond doubt. And they make a clear Christological statement here. They say, we know thou art the Son of God. You say, well, that's not a big statement. Oh, it is. To be the Son of God means that He is in the same essence as the Father. It means, he, it means you've heard the phrase, like father, like son. I love that about my boys. They, good or bad, they want to be just like their dad. Love that about them. Makes me want to be a better man. If my boys want to be like me, I better, I better do good. I better love Christ. I better love His church. I better live holy. I better love their mom. They want to be like father, like son. And when they say the son of God, they're saying like father, like son. And it's not a little resemblance. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. I and the father are one. We're the same essence. This is a Trinitarian, Christological statement. This is the son of God. He's uniquely related to the one true God. This is the highest honor that you can give to anyone. He is the son of God. 
And the father had said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. This is why they worship. We know you're the son of God. We know that you have the same essence as the father. We know it's like father, like son. And like he deserves worship, you deserve worship. And we bow down. That was their response to that miracle. And that is the right response to the miracle. I don't have time to get into this, the parable of the souls where we've seen the hardness of heart, where we've seen the superficial, I like you now, but I don't like you later. This is the good soul. They recognize who he is. They receive it into their hearts, and they respond with bowing down and worshiping him. Because that's what Jesus deserves. In a culture right now who uses Jesus, They twist his words to use it for their platform. We don't use Jesus. We worship Jesus. We bow down before Jesus. And these disciples aren't the only ones. Matthew chapter 2, Jesus was a baby and the wise men worshipped him. Matthew chapter 8, Jesus heals a leper. You know what the leper does? Worships him. John 12, the Gentiles worship him. Mark 5, the maniac worships him. John 5, the blind man worships him. Matthew chapter 28, the disciples see Jesus after the resurrection. You want an impossible miracle? I'll I'll give you another one. That's just up till now. But when Jesus raises his own self from the dead, there's you a miracle. If this doesn't make you want to bow down, then a risen Savior will. Matthew 28, they bow down and they worship Jesus. Walking on water is child's play compared to the resurrection. Luke 24, you want another miracle? He walks on the clouds. He ascends into the heavens. And you know what the disciples do? It becomes a theme. They bow down and worship him. Hebrews chapter 1 says the angels worship him. Revelation chapter 4 and 5 is one of the most beautiful pictures you'll ever see of heaven when all of heaven, the multitudes and the angels bow down and worship the one who has authority over all creation. They worship the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God. Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive power and glory and honor and on and on and on and on. You deserve everything. Revelation 11, Revelation 19, heaven worships the Son of God. If that isn't your response to the Son of God, your response is wrong. When you see this, it shouldn't be, wow, it should be to bow. I'll give you another one. Here's where we need to go. You guys want to turn there with me? I'm not going to do the impossible today. I'm sorry. We'll find another day. Philippians chapter 2. Somebody took Philippians out of my Bible. Philippians chapter 2, I found it. Let this mind be in you, which was in also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, fully and truly divine. Do you get that? Thought it not robbery to be equal with God but made himself of no reputation. He emptied himself and took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and become obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore now, for this reason, because he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of a cross, God now, because of that, has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every single name. It is music to our ears to hear the name of Jesus. Given him a name that is above every other name. There's no name like Jesus. The sweetest name on earth. That at that name, at the name of Jesus, look at this. Every. You want to underline the word every? You know what every means? Every. Every knee should bow. Every knee should bow. They're bowing to everything today but Jesus. But one day, every single knee will bow. 
You can refuse it today. We've seen pictures of this. Herod didn't bow. Nazareth didn't bow. The crowd didn't bow. But the disciples, they bowed. That was right. That's the right response to Jesus is to bow in worship. You can deny Him now. You can refuse Him now. You can reject Him now. But one day, every single knee will bow to Jesus. They will fall before Him. You can do it now because you want to. Or you can do it later and be forced to. Constrained to. Every knee will bow. Things in heaven, things in earth, and things under the earth. I think that includes everything, don't you? Look around the room today. Look at people. Every single one of you will bow the knee to Jesus. You will submit to Him and worship Him because you want to. You'll do it because you're forced to. But every knee will bow. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We will say, you are Lord. You are the Son of God. You are the same essence as the Father. We will bow before the Son of God and call Him Lord. Jesus is Lord. That's a great phrase. Can you say that today? Jesus is my Lord. And I bow before Him. That's worship. Don't let people change the definition of worship for you. We can come to church and we can sing and we call it worship. It is. People say, we're having a worship service. And then the worship service ends, the preaching begins. No. What we're doing right now is worship. You say, how is that so? We take the word of God and set it before you and everybody in these pews should should be bowing before God in his word. Whatever you say, I'll do. Whatever you say, I'll do. This is a greater act of worship than anything that we can do. We bow before His Word and do whatever He tells us to do. And we don't just do it in church, we do it every single day. Get this. I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to say it. If it gets me in trouble, so be it. The world is bowing down to what everybody else wants them to do. But inside the church, we are different than the culture. We only bow down to what Jesus wants us to do. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That must be our response to Jesus. That's the right response. So what should our response be? We should bow and worship Him. We should trust Him. When the storms hit, you may be going through a storm right now. A.W. Pink says this, Dear Saint, Whatever may be the path appointed by the Lord, however difficult or distasteful, continue therein, and in his own good time he will deliver you. Trust him. And for unbelievers here today, I, I want to make it very simple. That's why I turn back to Matthew 14, and I want to underline, Lord, save me. Those three words is all you need to say today. You need to see yourself in an impossible situation that you have no hope of getting yourself out of. I'm on my way to hell. I'm sinking deep in my sin. And there's nothing I can do. I'm not strong enough to swim it. I'm not strong enough to to get myself out of it, to row and, and, and to escape hell. There's no way I can do that on my own. And if Jesus doesn't save me, I have no hope. You need to get there. Whether you're in here today or on the Facebook Live today watching, you need to get to the point where you say, it's impossible for me to save myself. And the really, truly the most impossible, you want to see a miracle. I'll close with this. I think walking on water is an impossible miracle. I think resurrecting yourself from the dead is an impossible miracle. And Jesus has done this. I think riding on the clouds in ascension into heaven, that's impossible. He's surfing on a cloud. That's impossible, but Jesus does it. He's going to come back one day, and you want to see something impressive. He's coming back on clouds. That's impressive. That's impossible. He's going to do it. But you, don't know, you want to know what the most impossible miracle in the world is? For Jesus to save an old filthy sinner like me. And yet he does it. 
and he can do it for you. You say, what do I do? Lord, save me. Lord, save me. And he will immediately save you from your sin where you can escape hell and enter into heaven. What a miracle that would be. I pray today that here comes Jesus, not walking on water, but saving souls. That he would save people in here. Maybe a child today, for the very first time, understands, Lord, save me. Lord, save me. And Jesus will save you. Maybe you're an adult here today. You've never really truly cried out, Lord, save me. He'll save you. No, he has turned nobody away that sincerely and genuinely turns to him by faith. And he will not turn you away. Lord, save me. Lord, save me. Is this not a wonderful miracle? Showing us who Jesus is and what he's capable of doing. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful picture you've given us of your son. And we bow in this church and we bend the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we call him our Lord. And I pray, God, across this room and even across the airwaves on Facebook that you would pierce people's hearts, that you would open their eyes like the disciples. Their eyes were open and they were convinced of who he was and what they should do. And I pray that there's somebody in this room right now or somebody in their home right now that will cry out, Lord, save me. Lord, save me. And that Jesus, in the power of his hand, and dying upon a cross, will save them from their sin. Souls in danger, look above. Jesus completely saves. He will lift you by his love out of the angry waves. He'll do that today. May, may God, you please, work in hearts today. And we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.